Greetings in Christ's name. Robert, I was blessed by what you shared. I think it's uh, that yearning for a love for God is, is what should really motivate and drive us as Christians. I'd like to uh, welcome you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. The last time I preached, I focused on the first six verses of this psalm. Always really appreciated Psalm 19 because there's so much packed into it. The first part talks about God's creation and how that creation points us to the Creator. And that's really important. It's important enough that Romans tells us, Romans chapter 1, that there is no excuse for those who see the creation of God and see the world that He's made and yet not understand that there is a Creator. But you know, the creation was never intended to be worshipped. It was always there. Paul talks about that. Those who worship the creation rather than the Creator. We had a, uh, we have a, we have a neighbor who was sort of wrapped up in the whole um, animal rights uh, idea. And uh, one of her magazines came to our house one time by mistake. Her address is similar to ours, and I took it to her, but I have to be honest, I scanned it first because I was curious about what was in there. It was, a, it was published by PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and it was phenomenal what they said about animals and how that they said that we need to work to free our brothers and sisters from this life of bondage that we as humans give them. And they focused on creation. We've, we've seen this throughout the Old Testament, the history in the Old Testament, you had men and women who worshipped the sun or the stars of heaven. They worshipped the heavens. And that was never intended. Today, we have pagans alive and well today. We have a pagan movement in the United States. You've probably seen some of the pictures. We sometimes call them, some of these people tree huggers where they worship creation. And I saw, I actually saw a video that was taken at one of these services, if you want to call it that. Someone smuggled in a cell phone and took video of it and published it. And it was, they were literally crying and worshiping the trees, the majesty of the trees around them and, and confessing their faults and their failure to preserve Mother Earth to the trees and asking the trees to forgive them. And it was just, it was bizarre because they were worshiping the creature rather than the Creator. They were worshiping the creation rather than the ones who created it. So I'm going to go ahead and read Psalm 19 again today. And, but we'd like to focus on verses 7 through 10 today and just kind of zero in on another portion of God manifesting Himself through His Word. Psalm 19, beginning at verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the earth, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. 
the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More are they to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Moreover by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. And I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to really focus on various aspects of these four verses. First of all, notice that we have a common literary tactic, tactic that was used in the Old Testament in the Hebrew, and it's called parallelism. You have the first part of the verse mentions the truth. The second part of that verse parallels that truth with more truth. And I, I was talking to my... Uh, with, uh, to my to our son Ron this morning. Ron was in Bible college in Tacoa Falls, uh, Georgia, for four years, has a bachelor's degree in adult communication, and he they did a lot of Bible study. And one of the things that they did was focused on the Hebrew in the Old Testament, and they talked about the literary tactics that are used and about the amazing parallelism in the Old Testament. When I was at uh, EBI. Uh, here about a year ago, I sat down with one of the brethren there um, who is kind of their Greek and Hebrew expert, and he was taking me, he was showing me the same things in the Old Testament. The amazing literary tactics in the Old Testament, especially in the book, in the books of Psalms and Proverbs. And it's, I believe that God inspired the writing of these words. I believe that he spoke through David, in the case of the, most of the Psalms. Not all the Psalms were written by David, but many of them. And he, I believe that he gave him words that no human could, could conjure by himself. Because when you look at the tactics, they are so sophisticated and so well-placed that no human could do it. And uh, what Brother Schwarzenegger was showing me in, in uh, at EBI was kind of the same thing Ron was talking about, how that in the middle of the book of Psalms, there is a central point and tr truths kind of spread out in both directions from there. In the middle of many of the Psalms, the same thing happens where a prayer was written and the, the, um, the parallelism is centered around a central point and goes kind of in both directions from there. No human could do that. It is so well-placed, and yet it's not just a fancy literary tactic. It actually conveys truth, and we'll see a little bit of that today as we look at verses 7 through 10. First notice he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Let's focus in on that first clause. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Now, to really appreciate this, you almost have to do a Hebrew word study. You have to delve into the Hebrew a little bit. I'm, I'm not a Hebrew 
expert, but Vines and uh, Strong's can give you a lot of light on the, uh, the meanings of some of these words and how they're used throughout Scripture in other places. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So when you look at the word perfect, or it talks about the law of the Lord, the word perfect means complete, entire, whole. And I think one of the thoughts that is being uh, passed on here is that creation gives us an incomplete look at the Creator. It does give us a look at God. It says, this is God. He has, he is, has great majesty. He is infinitely wise and infinitely powerful. But that's about as far as we can go with a study of nature. So people who tell you that they don't go to church, they just go out in the woods and spend time with God in nature, well, you can worship God and you can be made aware of his awesomeness by sitting around in nature, but you don't understand God in his completion. The Word of God gives you a complete picture of who God is. And, and when I say complete, I don't mean that we understand every nuance of God, but it helps us understand who God is, why he's there, what his goals are for us, what he wants us to do, what our part is in his, in his plan of salvation, and so on. So the word perfect means complete, and it kind of alludes to the fact that the word of God gives us a more complete picture of God. It also means sound and wholesome, unimpaired, innocent, having integrity, complete and entirely in accord with truth and fact. So he, he gives us the picture here that the word of God, the law of the Lord, is based on absolute truth or it conveys absolute truth. Um, it's interesting, we, uh, we've talked some about Jordan Peterson and the fact that he's not a Christian, interestingly enough, and yet at times conveys truths about Scripture. And, and you wonder, well, how can you understand these truths without giving your life to Christ? But he, one of the things that he mentioned and that I heard him say in a talk is that the Word of God, the Bible, he said, is not only truth, but it is the basis for truth. And if we didn't have the Scriptures, there would be no place from which truth would emanate and give us the, the ability to say, this is right and this is wrong. The only thing we would have would be observation. And observation is relative. The way you see things and the way I see things are different. And we can see what happens when a culture is lets go of the anchor of Scripture and starts looking at just observation. You get the mess that we have in the United States today, but we don't even know what a woman is. We have become so confused that we don't know what right and wrong is anymore. We are completely confused by it because we have decided that truth is not absolutely bound up in the scriptures and that this is not the basis for truth. Our country was founded on the idea that scripture conveys truth. And if you read the writings of the founding fathers of our country, they repeat over and over again that if you remove the base, the base of morality and righteousness and truth from our nation, you will no longer have grounds for a free republic. 
and you will find your country spiraling into tyranny. And that's exactly what's happening. If you look at what's going on right now, we are no longer living in a country that's as free as it once was. We are living in increasingly a police state where a power party that is in control tries to enforce its way by using all of the agencies that were there for the enforcement of law. They're using them against their political opponents and trying to force us down a certain path that is contrary to scripture and truth. So we should judge everything that is stated as true ultimately against Scripture. And if it sounds like a politician is lying, it's probably because he is. And go back and weigh what he says against Scripture and say, is this true? So the law of the Lord is perfect and complete. Then we go to converting the soul. The idea of converting is to turn back, to take something and change it from one direction to another, to change it from one state to another, to change it completely. And when you look at the next verse, or the next word, uh, nefesh, nefesh means spirit in the Hebrew. And it's the same word when it says converting the soul, the word soul is nefesh. And when you go back and look in Hebrews, or I'm sorry, in, in Genesis chapter 1, and it talks about God breathing life into man. Man became a living soul. It's the same Hebrew word. It's talking about the spiritual portion of, of, of man. And so it tells us that the word of God converts or changes the spiritual part of man completely. The human spirit is brought to repentance changing its direction completely. Justification of the Spirit results in a change in our spiritual identity. Are you the same person spiritually that you were when you were 18? I hope not. I hope you are a different person because Jesus Christ has changed you through the application of His blood. Or maybe you were a Christian before you were 18. If so, then you are the same person that you were then. But you are not the same person spiritually that you were when you were born. You have been changed. And that's what this is telling us. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. While creation reveals the Creator and His great wisdom and power, it doesn't provide the way of reconciliation to God. And then we go to the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So the word testimony here means that which is related, something the story that is told. God's word is a story, and with it is wisdom and truth. He tells us what happened and why it happened and all the spiritual truths around that. It's interesting to me, one of the things that I really find interesting is that the word of God challenges us, first of all spiritually, but also intellectually. It challenges our mind. It doesn't change just our heart. It also changes our mind. It changes who we are. The Word of God is in, it has a very simple message in, other, in one way, but a very complex message in another. And it can challenge even the wisest man. My family and I were watching uh, the uh, movie about C.S. Lewis, The Most Re Reluctant Convert. really encourage you to watch that if you get a chance. It's a very interesting movie that talks about why he became what he did and how he came to the Lord. And a man with the intellectual capacity of C.S. Lewis, a very intelligent person, 
That intellect was challenged by the Word of God, and he couldn't deny its truth. He tried to, but eventually had to give way to the fact that the Word of God is true. So the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. <clears throat> I really... I really don't know how to convey what I'm trying to say. I'm, I'm almost at a loss of words when I think of what he's saying here. And as I, as I, as I looked at Scripture, and as I looked at, at the Hebrew behind it, the idea of being sure is the idea of being of undergirding and providing a foundation so that the Word of God is able to hold up those who read it and apply it and to give them a confidence because it holds them up and bears them up. It undergirds. It gives wisdom to those who are naive. If you look at uh, the, the latter part of that phrase which says the word of God is sure giving wise, or making wise the simple. The word simple means naivete. So what is that, what does that, or that uh, English word mean? Well, it means you're naive. It's a state of being naive. Have you ever seen someone who is very naive about something? Maybe they go to a used car lot and a salesman hypes up this car and they come back giving you all the virtues of the car and, and you realize that they're completely overlooking some glaring faults because they've kind of been misled and they're kind of, they're, they're being very very naive about the situation. They're not allowing themselves to see the full picture. And that's what this word simple means. It means we're naive, we're unable to understand with clarity the whole picture. But it says making wise the simple. So not only does the Word of God bear us up and undergird us, but it gives us wisdom so the, the fact that we're undergirded and we are given wisdom gives us confidence. And it tells us in the Old Testament that in confidence or in quietness and confidence is your strength. We're able to move forward because we have a confidence that God's word gives us. <clears throat> My wife and I were listening to a message by Dr. David Gibbs the other evening. And I've, I've always enjoyed listening to Dr. Gibbs. Um, when I was involved in Christian education many years ago, back in the early 80s, um, we used a curriculum that was called ACE, Accelerated Christian Education. It was uh, published by the Baptist Church out of Texas. And one of the people that was closely associated with that movement was the man, Dr. Gibbs. And he had an organization called Christian Law Association, or CLA, and they're, they're still in existence today. They all, for all these years, what they've been doing is providing legal advice for free to churches and Christian schools that come under attack by government officials. And he's also a preacher. And I've always loved to listen to him speak. He has a lot of good stories, a lot of experience. He, he's humorous at times, but also very serious at times. But he was talking about, in one of his messages, he was talking about a Christian pastor, an evangelist, who had come to the area where David lived when he was just a young man, just a boy actually, to have tent meetings. And he had a tent with him. And he said the tent was about 20% tent and 80% patches. He said it was in really bad shape. 
and he wanted to erect this tent. And so he contacted David's father because David's father had semi-trucks and asked if they could you know, pull the posts apart and help set up this tent. And he said that they went out, but they looked at him and they said, we're afraid that if we actually apply pressure to this tent, it's going to come apart. It's literally in that bad shape. Are you sure you even want us to try this? And he said, yes, please do. He said, God wants me to have meetings here. And so he, he said, I'm going to pray. And he said he went aside and he cried out to God and in an earnest prayer. He said, God, please, we need this tent. Please allow it to be erected without being torn. And he said after a, some earnest prayer, he came back and the truck driver said, what's that guy doing? And he said, well, he's praying. They said, we've never seen anybody pray like that before. He was so earnest in his prayers. He came back, they erected the tent and it went up just fine. And then he told David, he said, it seems like, he said, God is calling me to preach on television. And that was way back in the days when television was still fairly new. And it was very expensive, it still is today, but it was very expensive to, to be able to have a TV station broadcast anything. And so he went to a TV station and he kept asking them to give him 15 minutes a week to preach the gospel and of course they turned him down flat they said you don't have any you know you, you have to I mean that costs a lot of money we're not going to do this for you and he went back repeatedly and the, finally the, 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 the TV station manager said what makes you think I would ever give you 15 minutes he said because I ask I ask God he said I've been praying that God will give me those 15 minutes and he said through a series of events eventually the wife of the manager who actually owned the TV stations. Her parents or her family owned a series of, of stations. They were very wealthy people. And this man had kind of married into his position. She came back and she said, I've been hearing you ask for this 15 minutes. She said, I'm going to, we're going to give it to you. And she said, not only are you going to get 15 minutes here, but we're going to give you 15 minutes on each of our stations. And he said, in the end, he said that it wound up that the, the man was able to preach on multiple stations and proclaim the Word of God. He said, how did that happen? He asked God. He trusted God. And that's what this is trying to convey to us, that God undergirds us and makes us wise, and so we can cry out to Him, and He will help us. Because I ask. Isn't that a simple phrase? Why do you trust? Because I ask. And I've been thinking about that. As we continue in, in, the, in the situation that we're in, in, in the middle of a culture that is just going mad, are we asking enough? You know, are we asking that God to bring judgment on the evil in our nation? Are we asking God to give us courage and boldness to proclaim truth loudly and clearly? You know, let's ask because God will act and He will give us what we ask for as long as it's according to his will. C.S. Lewis, in The Most Reluctant Convert, talked about the fact that he could not bring himself to accept the truth of the Bible. He was an atheist, and he, he talked about why. He said, you know, we have supposedly this God who's in charge of this universe. He has this world, this tiny little globe in the middle of this universe 
that is unique in the sense that it has life on it, not, not just simple life, but very sophisticated life, and yet it's a mess. It's terrible. There's injustice here. There's evil here. There's suffering here. If God were real, why would he not take care of that mess? And so he struggled with that for years. And a friend of his became a Christian and kept interacting with him. And he talked about how at one point he went from atheism to theism. He changed. He didn't become a Christian, but he accepted the fact that there is a God. And that God created the universe. Now, C.S. Lewis had come from a very difficult background. His mother passed away when he was just young of cancer. His father, though well-meaning, wasn't the best dad. He was kind of, a, kind of a harsh, dictatorial kind of father. And he grew up in that atmosphere and couldn't wait to get away from his family. And he had a really, really difficult time. But at, he came to the place, he said, as he examined Scripture and he examined history, he came to the place where he realized that the truth of the resurrection could not be denied. And if that was true, Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and he embraced Christianity. And we've all benefited from that. Uh, C.S. Lewis has given us a lot to think about. So making wise the simple. C.S. Lewis became wise, though he was simple, because he allowed himself to ingest the word of God and to accept the word of truth. If we don't do that, we live in a dumbed-down world. Lester talked last week about the dumb ages, and that's kind of where we are because we have not been willing to accept the truth of Scripture. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So we see this phrase again and again, of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord. And it's always talking about Jehovah. The word Lord there in the Hebrew is Yahweh. And it means Jehovah, who is the self-existent one. It's the one who is able to get along by himself without anyone else, and yet desires a relationship with us because he loves us. The statutes or the precepts, the commandments of the Lord, are right. And this conveys, the, the, the Hebrew word behind the word right, conveys the idea of a straight line, of a measuring device, something that, again, conveys absolute truth. It is the basis for truth. It says that the statutes of the Lord are right. They're straight. They're correct. They're, you can count on them. They're always correct rejoicing the heart. So the idea is here that as we understand the fact that we have absolute truth and we can count on that truth, it brings joy. Now, have you ever been in a situation where you weren't sure what was right? And maybe you, I remember back in the days before the GPS, when we used maps and we'd be driving and maybe the map wasn't quite current anymore. And you're like, well, what's, what's, what's right? Am I supposed to get off on this exit? Or am I supposed to go down to that exit? Wh which way is correct here? And even today, sometimes, you know, you ever argue with your GPS? I've done that a few times. Like, are, is that thing right? Is it really correct? Is it really taking me in the right place? And when that happens, it's very disconcerting. Your heart is not happy at that moment because you don't know whether you can lean on this or not. 
but it's telling us that when you understand that the Word of God is absolute and true and correct, you can rejoice in that. You can be happy in that. You can have great peace in that. And then the word heart simply means the inner man, the will, the understanding. We rejoice because of the truth, the veracity of God's word. <clears throat> and he goes on and he says that the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure and lightening the eyes. So the purity of God's word, it speaks of something that is unadulterated, something that is completely pure and right, and that enlightens the eyes. It opens our eyes. It's, it, when, you, when you live in purity and you can read the word of God with the assurance that it gives you directions that are pure and right, it enlightens your eyes. It gives you a confidence and it gives you a knowledge of how to walk and where to go. You know, we, we take that for granted as Christians sometimes, but we really shouldn't. Because to be in a moral quagmire where you really don't know what's right, that's the worst place in life to be. You don't know what's right. What should I do? Should I do this or should I do that? Because I don't know what's right. And so being able to confidently have your eyes opened, you can walk. It's like having a light turned on and you know just where to walk. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. When it speaks of fear, it's not speaking of trembling in, in terror at God, but it's speaking of a great reverence for God, being able to look at him in a way that helps us understand who we are. When you look at God and you understand his righteousness and truth, it helps us understand how unable and how undone we are. And it gives us the ability to be confident again because our God is great and powerful and real. <clears throat> the purity that it speaks of there in the Hebrew is ceremonial, physical, and moral. Cleanness all the way around. So don't despair. The principles that we stand for as Christians, even though they're ridiculed and attacked, they are pure and they will last forever. It brings a courage to us again and allows us to defy the devil and his forces to their faces and remain standing when we understand that the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It will never go away. It will never change. It's durable. It lasts forever. And the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And there again, when it speaks of truth and righteousness, it speaks of that which is straight, that which is correct, that which is reliable, and it talks about lasting forever. The word altogether there in the Hebrew means it brings, uh, it unites us with God and it unites us with each other. What brings us together? 
What brings us together Sunday after Sunday? Why do we come here and worship with each other? Well, it's because we're united, right? We're united in, in our love for truth and our desire to do what God wants. And that's kind of what this is conveying. Having that Word of God, ingesting that Word of God, understanding that truth, understanding that it's pure and right, brings you into a united stance with God and with one another. You know, our society pushes the idea of social justice. Have you, have you heard that term a lot? Sometimes people call themselves social justice warriors and they say they're fighting for social justice. What exactly is the social justice they speak of and how does it relate to the truth and righteousness of God's word? Well, some of you probably listened to Bodhi Balcom and I, I really encourage you to listen to some of the things he talks about, especially in relation to so-called social justice. He has a whole, I, I listened to a message on that here several weeks ago. And the idea of social justice as it's laid out in our culture is based on what is called critical theory. And critical theory was penned by none other than Karl Marx, the founder of communism and Marxism. And critical theory kind of, it has, it has this idea. It has the idea that society is made up of the class, or it doesn't have to be a class, it is made up of the oppressors and the oppressed. And they, they're, they're, the, the Marxists are always trying to divide societies into classes of some sort. For Karl Marx and the Soviet Union came into being in 1917, or the beginning of the Soviet Union, the whole idea was that there was a class difference. You had the wealthy people who were oppressing the poor, according to them. Now today, we have other categories. We have critical race theory, the idea that whites are the oppressors and blacks especially are the oppressed. And so the whole construct of, of society should, the whole, whole function of society should be to right those wrongs and make the oppressor stop oppressing and let the oppressed not be oppressed anymore. And that is supposed to be social justice. Well, there are many things wrong with that theory. First of all, it's just not true. Okay, I mean, it, it, you can, it's verifiable that that is not at all correct in our culture today. In fact, you have to be very careful today when you talk about a black person, you have to be very careful what you say. Because if you say the wrong thing, you're gonna find yourself dragged into court or you'll lose your job or who knows what. You can say bad things about white people with immunity. You can call people rednecks and nobody cares. But if you dare speak badly of black people, then you're in trouble. So that tells you that it is not true that we have a class of oppressors and the oppressed. But the worst thing that it does is that it divides society into classes. And so now you have white versus black. And you literally have this happening in many public schools today where you have critical race theory being taught. They try to deny it and they try to hide the fact that they're doing it but they're actually doing it. And what they're teaching children is, you little white children, you're part of the oppressive class. So you should be very much 
ashamed of yourself. You know, now you, you have to be, you know, because you are part of that oppressive class, you should be ashamed of yourself. There should be a certain amount of shame that comes because you're white. That's awful. That's terrible to teach anyone that, let alone small children. It has nothing to do with justice. It has to do with manipulation. Using a, pulling the strings in a class, keeping people at odds with each other. For how many years now have we had white people and black people working together and nobody cares what color their skin is? You see a person and you see he's black, so what? You don't even think about it. There's been times when somebody has asked me if a certain person is black and I have to think about it for a minute to remember because he's just another person. Nobody cares and yet by injecting this idea of social justice, they're once again stratifying our culture and turning us against each other. Why? Because then you can control the masses. You can make them do what you want. If you bring them to a point where they're fighting with each other, then you can be the savior who brings them forward. Biblical justice, on the other hand, is based on the idea that all of us are on the same level and that we should all be treated alike. There should not be we shouldn't treat a black man differently from a white man, from an Asian man. Everyone should be treated the same because we are all part of the creation of God. And the idea that we are, you know, if you look at the, if you look at the DNA structure of a black man versus a white man versus an Asian man, they're so nearly alike, there's very little difference. We're all God's, it's, it's someone who once said, let's forget about the fact that there are races. We're all part of the human race. Who cares what color our skin is? And the idea here in Scripture is that God's Word is just. It brings justice. And when it's applied, it does. Again, as I mentioned earlier, the, the America was founded on the idea that rights come from God. Where did that idea come from? From Scripture. The Bible makes it clear that God is the one who gives us rights. And because of that, all of us here, our ancestors, came to America largely because of that idea. That's justice, that's truth, that's righteousness. So where does it come from? From God's Word. And so Psalm, 9, or Psalm 19 makes it clear to us, as, the, as does many other passages of Scripture, that we cannot have justice without the truth of God's Word. A society that does not use the Word of God as the basis for justice does not have justice. And if you doubt that, Travel around a little bit and go to countries that refuse to accept the Bible as truth. You don't get justice there. You look at the Soviet Union and, and you look at, at communist China. They had atheistic governments for many years. And in the 19th century, or I'm sorry, in the 20th century alone, they murdered over 100 million of their own countrymen. No other culture has ever done that before. Why? Because they completely abandoned the idea that Scripture is the basis for truth. I want to just look at one more verse and then and I want to close this. But if you look at the, I think it's verse 10, where it talks about honey and it talks about gold, it says, speaking of the precepts and the statutes and the judgments of the Lord. It says, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. There are some interesting properties about gold and honey that, interestingly enough, are 
the same. They happen to be somewhat the same color, but that's not really what I was thinking of. One of them is that both of them are very durable. If you have gold, one of the things that makes gold so precious is its durability. So what happens if you take a piece of iron and you build something out of iron and you expose it to the elements and it's exposed to oxygen? Well, it gradually begins to combine with oxygen, doesn't it? And it forms iron oxide and slowly but surely your iron turns into iron oxide. What's another name for iron oxide? Rust. So it rusts away. Um, aluminum does a better job of resisting the elements and the way that it does it is on the surface of a piece of aluminum you have an interaction with oxygen and it actually forms a substance which is like aluminum's version of rust but that serves as a sealer so it seals in the rest of the aluminum and keeps the, the process from going on further so aluminum is more durable but what is the single most durable element that we know it's gold right Gold does not tarnish. You know, if you have copper, what happens with a copper roof? It turns green, right? It tarnishes. It interacts with the elements. What happens with silver even? You have to polish silver. For those of you, if any of you have ever had true silverware, what do you have to do? You have to polish it repeatedly because it tarnishes. But gold does not. Gold is very resistant to anything else. It stands on its own. It's durable, and so is honey. Honey is amazingly durable. Did you know that in the pyramids of Egypt, they have found samples of honey that are 4,000 years old, and it's still fresh. You can still eat it because it's extremely durable. Along with that, both of them are also very pure. Gold is pure because it resists the elements around it. It stays true to the structure that it was originally in. And so does honey. Honey stays, uh, stays durable because it's a natural antibiotic. It kills bacteria. So when bacteria tries to break it down, it just kills the bacteria. So both honey and gold are very pure and very durable. Is that not true of the Word of God? It's pure and it's durable. And he says, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So what is the most durable thing aside from God himself? It is his Word, right? It will always be there. Even after we find this world destroyed in judgment, God's word will still be there. It's pure. There's nothing that is more pure than the word of God. So he's using these analogies, and I just, I, I just find this beautiful. As I think about the fact that, you know, as David penned these words, he was motivated and guided by God. And God gave us a glimpse of the beauty of his word and why we should appreciate it and why we should love it and why it is more desirable than gold or honey. If I brought 
you a bar of gold, would you be happy to receive that gold? I, I mean, I would. I'd say, wow, that's great. Or if I gave you a nice big pot of honey, probably appreciate and love that. But this is more precious than that. If I have to choose between gold and the Word, I hope I choose the Word. If I have to choose between honey and the Word, I just want to choose the Word. More to be desired today than gold, either much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Okay, let's close with that. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that Psalm 19 goes into a lot of detail in describing the preciousness of your word. Father, let, help that to just sink into our hearts and into our minds, helping us to understand that when we spend moments of time with you in the word, it's a valuable investment that much as we love gold, much as we love honey, and much as we love the finer things in life, your word is far more precious. And when we need to choose between the two, help us always to choose your word because it's eternal. It doesn't just last for 4,000 years or 10,000 years. It lasts forever. So Father, help us to have an appreciation for your word, a love for your word, and a desire to let it change us and to convert us into what you want us to be. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd just like to open it for a few moments.